Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, we know that the city of Seattle was named after a prominent Native American chief. We call him Seattle. The proper pronunciation is more like... It wasn't Seattle. I mean, how do you pronounce the name? Seattle. Seattle. I mean, it's like, how are you going to pronounce It's impossible to pronounce. We have remnants of words of wisdom attributed to him. The president in Washington sends word that he wishes to buy our land. But how can you buy or sell the sky? The land? The idea is strange to us. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? But the veracity of these quotes is dubious at best. We believe he may have been born on nearby Blake Island. He knew the region thoroughly and traveled it widely. We know he grew to be a tall man. Traders called him Le Gros, the big guy, and a respected leader and orator. But his people lost much in treaty negotiations, and his tribe, the Duwamish, have never been recognized by the United States, despite years of effort. And in most ways, the Seattleites who took his name don't know who he was. Writer and historian David Berge has steeped himself in the history of the people who thrived in this region before explorers and pioneers arrived. His knowledge of what life was like here before it was quote-unquote discovered will likely surprise and fascinate you. David Berge spoke with journalist and writer Knut Berger at Folio, the Seattle Athenaeum, on August 3rd. Uh, well, welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm really excited about this because I know Dave is going to be able to teach me a lot that I've been interested in finding out for a long time. Uh, anyway, I remember, uh, you know, I grew up in Seattle, but I, when I returned to Seattle after college in the mid-1970s, I went down to the Seattle Public Library and asked them if they had a good biography of Chief Seattle. And uh, somewhere along the line, I realized that I didn't know much about Chief Seattle, a uh, person our city is named after. And uh, they gave me a children's book and uh, an, another book that seemed to have, uh, I don't know, it just it wasn't, it didn't meet the kind of scholarly standard I was looking for. It was more of a, a general tale. And I was really surprised by this, and I began asking friends, you know, historian friends or writer friends uh, about it. Like, why, why isn't there a, a book about the guy we named the city after? And it obviously played an important role in the creation of the city. And I was told that uh, it wasn't well documented. There, there, there weren't good sources. Uh, we don't really know much. And, uh, and, of course, I knew that couldn't possibly be true, but I didn't do anything about it personally. I just kept that as a question. Uh, a lot of us think we know Chief Seattle. We see his picture on the logo for the city. Uh, we've heard quotes from a speech that he may or may not have given. Uh, if you Google Chief Seattle and look under images, you'll see images of other Indian chiefs with big... Plains Indian war bonnets, uh, and 
you know, he's a, he is still a kind of enigma. And uh, so I, David, of course, has taken the plunge. He's done the thing that historians have put off or ignored or didn't think worthy all these years and has dived in. And so the conversation tonight is just going to be exploring what David has learned and how he learned it. And what does that tell us about the city that we're in and how did he learn things that should make us look at the city differently? Uh, And so, David, I wanted to begin just by kind of asking a very, you to give us a sort of thumbnail sketch of, as you come to know him, a thumbnail sketch of Chief Seattle. Um, He lived uh, to be probably 80 years old, which is a long life. Um, By the time Americans uh, met up with him, he was an old man. Uh, The first historical reference to him, which is made in 1834, and William Fraser told me, writes, he was the handsomest Indian I have ever seen with a Roman countenance. Uh, And he was in his late 40s, early 50s by then. So, of course, he made his bones, as they say, in uh, in his earlier decades. Um, It's it's an odd thing about uh, Seattle is that at, at some level, there's a lot of information that we can know about him, uh, but only, be, only, because, uh, only by examining the layers of um, interpretation that's often based on a phrase or a memory. And so you have to plumb that, and you end up ans- asking the question, well, what did the person who wrote this down, what were they trying to say? Why were they saying that? And it's an awful lot like trying to understand what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we're talking to uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, you literally have to do that. Um, there are very few remarks that seem to come from Seattle himself. But what they are are really striking things. And one of the things that comes to me, and I'll get back to your question, but it's um, um, <laughs> in, just before the Battle of Seattle in 1856, uh, Kamayakan, who was a Yakima warrior, war leader, apparently um, sent Ojai another, I think, a relative, to western Washington to gauge um, the uh, temper of Native groups here to see whether or not they would be willing to engage in an uprising against the Americans. It had been long in coming, and they wanted to see just how much uh, um, support there would be for that. So uh, apparently there was a meeting at the mouth of the Snohomish River at a village called Highbold. Uh, there was one over at uh, Port Madison amongst the Snohomish, and there was also one where uh, Pier 70 is, a place called Bakbakwap, which was a little uh, uh, village down there. Apparently at one of these, Seattle said to him, and this is is from a native memory, a Skokomish memory, he said, Leshai, um, don't kill the men who have uh, married Indian wives. Yesler and those, they have married Indian women. Don't kill them, take my word. And, you know, you can kill all the rest, but the ones that have married Indian women, don't kill them. Now, there's a whole world of meaning in that because the purpose that Seattle, Seattle invited the Americans to come. They, they just didn't show up and go, oh, my God, who are these people? He actively, he actually was down Olympia for two years advertising, bringing Americans up to introduce them to his country. And uh, a year before, well over a year before the Denny party landed, 
uh, three other Americans came and landed on Elliott Bay in the middle of a, um, apparently a first salmon ceremony. And this was scripted. Uh, Seattle had actually made sure that they would come up. They weren't the first. He actually had a regular tour that he would take people on. These people would come to Olympia, and then um, people, well, he was in there, and he said, you know, I want you to come up because I've got this place I want you to see. He actually had a spiel. Um, we know because David Maynard wrote it down, but uh, several other people mentioned meeting him there, and he would bring them up, and uh, anyway, they landed at this, um, at Elliott Bay, and he came out, and he gave a speech, and he said, we want, don't be surprised, all these people yelling and shooting, we don't mean you any harm, this is what we do when we welcome the first salmon in. It's like what we do when the, the head of the Hudson's Bay Company comes to, on his visit. He's talking about George Simpson, who visited Fort Victoria in 1848. And he said, uh, we, we want you here. We're, we welcome you to our country because we want what you have to offer. We, we need the things that you produce because we can't produce them ourselves. So it was a sales pitch. And then he took, he had his people take them on a tour all the way into Lake Washington, showed them where the horse uh, trail came over the Cascades, down to, the, down to uh, the, the shore of the lake where another spur came and ended up right where they were at Elliott Bay, where Pioneer Square is now. So... He was actively involved in this, and actually he had been actively involved in that for years. But he's an old man by then, and out of what does that come? And so the best we can say is that Seattle was born in a period of apocalypse. He was born during the apocalypse, which was around 1770 and 1780 when smallpox was first introduced to accidentally uh, on ships from Spanish... British, maybe Russian, um, explorers and traders who came here, uh, bringing it from wherever they came from. And because this was a, a, a society, the people here had no immunity to it, probably as many as a third were wiped out. It, had a, it wasn't a decimation of a culture. Decimation means 10% die off. This was much more than that. And it actually started a cascade of death because there were other new diseases that also came in, typhus, diphtheria, measles, that just hit the population one after the other until they were reduced, for example, in the Willamette Valley, by 80 to 90 percent. They said one of, one of nine uh, people uh, survived in the Willamette Valley. Uh, so we cannot imagine um, what... There is nothing in the Western experience. The Black Death perhaps killed off half the Europeans. Um, that's the closest we can come in our experience to what this was. So it was an absolutely apocalyptic thing, and the interesting thing is, of course, is the Native people survived it. And one of the things I like to point out is, you know, here is a population that has actually been through what we still fear. You know, are we going to wake up one morning and we'll see some angel unzip the sky and, you know, all this crap will come out upon us? Um, we fear that. We fear nuclear annihilation. So we fear the apocalypse. Well, they've lived through it, and they've survived, and they've come back. So they have, they have historical and human knowledge that is exceedingly rare, and we're only now beginning to understand uh, what that means. Well, anyway, so that's what he was born in. We know, for example, his parents, um, his father, Shriach, was said to have been from Suquamish. His mother, uh, Shilatsa, was born on White River, apparently um, 
he grew up in a little house, not in a little house, it was a village called Stuck. In about the time that the smallpox epidemic swept through Puget Sound, there was a great flood on the White River and uh, completely um, flooded the valley, as it always did before they built uh, the dams on the Green River. But in any case, it flooded it, and then it was so powerful that it tore out a new channel from the White River that went into the Puyallup. It's called the Stuck River Channel today. Uh, so the White River actually divided into two distributaries, one going north, it met the green, formed and the White River, continued on, and then met the black, and then formed the Duwamish River that exited into Elliott Bay. That flood apparently produced a huge log, zan, log jam just west of Auburn. It was a mile long. It lasted uh, years, so long that the silt that collected could give rise to a forest of alder trees and brush that grew on it. When that happened, <clears throat> the combination of literally the land being changed and the impact of the smallpox epidemic decimated apparently a village called Fleet's House. Uh, and then with that, uh, five noble Duwamish families literally pull up their house posts and they move south to the southern end of the log jam and they build their houses. These are noble families and they suddenly become this presence and they lord it over everybody and the people of Fleet's House who apparently at one time had nobility but they were uh, decimated by the, by the epidemic and as people said, they were treated like slaves by the Stukabsh, the people of the Stuk village, Stukabsh, the people of Stuk. Well, there's an amazing amount of, uh, how shall I say, information from um, informants that were given at the turn of the century to two um, Western uh, ethnographers, T.T. Waterman, Thomas Talbot Waterman, and John P. Harrington. And these were, um, they interviewed several people, and they have lots of things to say about these two villages, and especially about Seattle's ancestry. Apparently, both Seattle's mother and father came from Flea's house. And um, they not only that, they were cousins. They married, it was an endogamous marriage. A noble marriage was always, you always married outside your group because you wanted to extend the group's economic ties. Sometimes it was not uncommon for people within it, if it was a large longhouse, to marry. But almost everybody there was related anyway, so that just would, would not have been done. But it seems to have been the case for um, Seattle's father and mother. But his father was also considered a noble at Suquamish. So he apparently had some history at Flea's house before the plague, when it was a noble village. But then he and Shalatza, his wife, had a history after that as well. Now, Shrihub remained at Suquamish. And um, Shalatza was buried in the White River. Well, Seattle was supposedly have been born may have been in Flea's house, but he was raised in Stuck. He was a young man that was raised in Stuck. And he had this taint of um, slavery. It possibly may be because of the uh, ambivalence regarding his parentage, but actually what it turns out was that Shweahub's grandmother apparently was captured by some northern group and hauled off into slavery, but she was rescued and brought back, but still she was a slave, so that taint stayed with her. And it was apparently a paternal grandmother uh, because both Seattle and Curly, Curly who lived down here was Seattle's half-brother, and um, the, um, the, the grandmother was apparently on the father's side. Well, I mean, this is really very involved. And so that is why, and then even in the 1850s, an American 
uh, Indian agent, E.E.A. Starling, said, well, you know, if it weren't for his good sense, Seattle would really have trouble with this because they say his mother's a slave. So in 1854, this story was flowed. As a matter of fact, it was being given currency because the Americans had just made Seattle the uh, head chief of not just the Duwamish but the Suquamish. Now, Angeline said actually her father was the chief of the Duwamish, not the Suquamish, but by the 1850s, he had developed such a reputation that the Suquamish, with whom he was related, uh, thanks to his father and other relatives, uh, made him their head chief as well. In any case, the interesting thing about the story is it survived until the 1950s in a strange way, and there was a, ah, I can't remember his name, he was a Skokomish legislator, he was a member of the Skokomish tribe, and he was a legislator in uh, George Adams, and he was a, a, a legislator in Washington, in uh, Olympia, and, uh, and he was, a, he was uh, sort of to the right of Attila the Hun, but nevertheless, he was, he was a well-known, uh, really uh, interesting, colorful person, but he said, yeah, Seattle, you know, everybody raves, the white men rave about it, but the Indians know better. For heaven's sake, he, his, he, he was born in a, in a uh, he was born a slave in, Flea, in Fleaburg. The name Fleaburg was actually a name given to a village on Lake Washington. It was an historic assemblage of people. But Fleaburg, Flea's house, the memory of a slave. So until the 1950s, that was still grist for the argument. So he had a very ambivalent um, past. That's how he starts his life, in a culture that is in collapse. Um, now, the result of all this uh, change, the, the terrible destruction caused by the epidemics, but also the, the, just the change, the, first, the introduction of firearms from the Hudson's Bay Company and the Norwesters, um, slave raiding, which had probably gone on, and especially when populations are reduced by half or a third, what do you do? Well, you go on slaving expeditions to capture, to kill the men so they can't come back, and to capture the women and the children so you can bring them back so you can rebuild your populations. And so that was the impetus for the slave raids. And the, um, that happened. And so um, all of this was taking place in Puget Sound when Seattle was born. Um, he was still a small boy, probably not into his double digits yet, when a raid from somewhere, we don't know, wiped out the people on Salmon Bay, the Shoshalabsh. Um, Angeline said he was a little boy when that happened. Now, that raid set in motion an effort by a very prominent Suquamish chief, Kitsap, or Kitsap um, to plan um, retribution, to attack the people who caused the raids, and in, uh, in the 1820s, that would have been the Cowichans from western Vancouver Island, um, to create a confederation of tribes, groups, in Puget Sound that would then go north in an armada of canoes, attack the village, and just cause enough havoc that would prevent the Cowichan from keeping raiding. Um, there are several stories about, even before that happening, when Seattle was in his 20s, there was a group coming down the White River. These were people who were from the interior, who usually wintered over uh, in the upper headwaters of the Green and White River. 
and these were Tob Shaddad. These were Yakima. The, the name for them here was Tob Shaddad, which meant traitor, but it also meant warrior. So think of like the Vikings. To go a Viking, what did you do? Well, you know, you, you killed a lot of people and you stole a lot of stuff and you went back and you were wealthy. So um, Tob Shaddad were, were slavers, but they were also traders. And because they were mobile, they came on horses, things like deer with uh, out antlers on their heads, whatever they were. Um, they're wonderful, great, but we'll get to those. Um, anyway, so they came, and so what was the reaction of the people? We've got to marry these people. We've got to get them in. First of all, if you intermarry with them, the violence would be mitigated. And this is how they dealt with a lot of their um, conflicts here was there was a sexual politics. You know, okay, look, you know, we agree to disagree. Why don't you marry my daughter? And we can talk about that. You know? and, so, and so they would. So, for example, the Suquamish intermarried with the uh, Cowichan after the Great Raid. And these things happened. Well, this is what the local people did when people invaded. This was a remarkable lesson. It was just made common sense, and it was the traditional approach. And, of course, Seattle tried to use this with the Americans, at first with tremendous success. With the rustics, the workers that came in, most of them single, um, but then when the educated middle-class Americans came in, oh, we can't have that because that was racial suicide. And so that didn't work. Can yeah. you get back to his personality? Yes, yes. Okay, so he comes to the – this is his life, you know. <laughs> this is uh, what he comes from. And so uh, he, he, he gains fame as a war leader. He is a war leader. Uh, first at, on the White River, and then he joins with Ketsap in this enormous uh, uh, effort to uh, uh, hammer the Cowichans. It is a Pyrrhic victory. Most of the uh, native people are killed, but nevertheless, the Cowichan have, have it enough, and so they intermarry. So that's his background. And then in the 1840s, oh, I should say, one of, the, um, one of the artifacts of Kitsap's alliance is Old Man House, this enormous wooden structure, probably the largest ever built on Puget Sound. And remember, now there probably were larger ones built in the 1870s and 80s, but they were done from sawn lumber from from um, sawmills, and they were using hammers and nails and saws. In the 1810s and 20s, they were done carved with stone tools. There was a tremendous amount of labor. So that huge building was like the cornerstone of this effort, and it was um, a symbol to the people of what they could do when they were organized. Well, anyway, so in the 1840s, Seattle apparently fortifies part of that because there are stories of him raiding up on the, Snohomish, on the Snoqualmie River. As a matter of fact, there's a great story of him. He's being chased by Yakima, and he's in his canoe, and he comes down the Snoqualmie River, and he's on the brink of the falls, and he jumps off onto a rock, which was called Seattle Rock. It was right at the brink of Snoqualmie Falls. And of course, the Yakima, oh, they go over the falls. And, you know, it's a great story. Now, the interesting thing is, <clears throat> it's like this can't possibly, they don't say how he got off the rock. And I, well, what could they do? Well, they could take trees and lower them with ropes, you know. No. But there are stories, for example, there's a, a Tuana story about Yakima going, coming down in canoes unfamiliarly because they're from eastern Washington, and they end up going over the falls in a canoe, which is very believable. And there's a story about a Suquamish woman, Mary Sam, whose mother was captured on the Upper Snoqualmie by um, a Suquamish headman. So the Suquamish are raiding on the Upper Snoqualmie, and Seattle is there. It's mentioned as being present there. He and his cousin, uh, excuse me, he and Curly take revenge on a White River village about 1841, kill a lot of people, um, capture a lot of slaves. 
so he is a, a, a violent person. And when the Hudson's Bay Company comes in, no other native leader has as many negative epithets associated with him in the Hudson's Bay writing as Seattle. It's the most amazing what, thing. What, what, like what? Well, the blackguard, a villain, he's a scamp, he's just up to no good, you know. And they talk about him getting into fights with people, threatening them with guns. And then at one point, the Hudson's Bay Company is trying to maintain peace because that's the only way the trade is going to develop. So what does Seattle do? Well, he kills a shaman uh, with a gun gotten from the Sahiwamish around Olympia. And his people want him dead. And so uh, there's huge hubbub. And so the Hudson's Bay Company finally... Uh, prevails on another Suquamish. His name is Stilicum. And this is Seattle's predecessor. And Stilicum is a very fascinating figure. But he's more of a, of a peacemaker. And he's very clever. And so they get Stilicum and he said, well, we'll go up and we'll arrange a peace. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a sham battle. There's a lot of shooting and yelling. Nobody gets hurt. And then we pay. So Seattle has to pay uh, the Sahiwamish because he bought the gun from them that he killed this shaman with his family has to pay the shaman's family and supposedly it's all taken care of but uh, whoever is writing the journal of occurrence of Nesquali house says I wish they would just determine on shooting the villain so that's that's, so that's the Hudson's Bay Company's version of Seattle um, he and his followers all armed show up to trade and uh, they uh, they finally leave, and, and the writer says, you know, thank God they've all gone. At one point, William Fraser told me when they leave, uh, on another occasion, he, he turns to the writings of St. Paul for solace. So they obviously have a lot of trouble with this guy. And there's a case to be made, actually, that um, the raiding that Seattle carried out so uh, disturbed that, uh, the life in central Puget Sound that the fur trade basically petered out. <laughs> now, there was, of course, the whole thing about the change of styles that the beaver had disappeared, but they weren't just trading in beaver. They were trading in ermine and martin and everything else. And so finally, the Hudson's Bay Company just threw up its arms and said, okay, we've got this big prairie. Let's just plant it in wheat, raise cattle and horses, and we'll create the Puget Sound Agricultural Company, and we'll get some colonists in here to take care of it. The Hudson's Bay Company would have never gotten colonists in because the, the point was just to have a relationship with the Indians, the traditional Indians. Seattle was one of the people that made that so difficult that the Hudson's Bay Company had to change its tactics. So, what, so that, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, you're suggesting that, that Seattle has had this seminal role in the colonization of yeah. the area. Yeah, Okay? Yeah. And then he's kind of like an, a Native American C.D. Hillman, right, the real estate developer oh. in Seattle <laughs> okay. who – who put on cruises and took people yes, out to yes. flats and so how told them it was from, the new Eden. So how do we get from war leader yeah, to that? Exactly. Yeah. Well, Blaggard to yes, yes. real estate salesman. So and there's, if you read like um, Eva Greenslet Anderson's biography of Seattle or John Metcalf's, and they always have, when the priests, when Blanchett and Demers, these two Catholic uh, missionaries first show up, well, they're not missionaries, they're priests, and they're sent in to uh, uh, basically serve the, Engagees, the, uh, the, the, the workers of the Hudson's Bay Company who were retired and living here, but also their native wives. Uh, anyway, they show up, and interestingly, the, the native people show great interest in this. Stilicum is one of the leaders of this. Um, and, but in these stories, Seattle is always there. It's a lot of, uh, 
his name was Felix Verwilgen. He was a priest who confused Seattle with Stillicum, said they were one and the same people. Stillicum went out of his way to get priests to come up to Whidbey Island. And there were a lot of reasons why he did this. But anyway, if you think he's Seattle, then obviously in the 18, late 1830s and 1840s, here's Seattle bringing the priests in. So he's obviously a religious leader. Um, well, that wasn't Seattle at all. Um, uh, we'll get to how I know that it was in Seattle. Uh, but anyway, um, he, was a, he was a war leader. Uh, and, um, but there were other people who remembered Kitsap's alliance. And when the British and the Americans, when war began to break out in uh, the 1830s and 40s, the Cayuse War, um, then the question was, well, what's going to happen to us? What what on earth is happening? Because these people show up and they say, oh, by the way, you belong, the land belongs to us now. It's like, well, how could this possibly be? Um, and as I mentioned in the book, you know, the, the Oregon country was the last temperate region of North America to be c- captured by the nets of imperialism. And um, there was a, obviously a real competition between the United States and Great Britain who was going to control this. In any case... Um, one of the people who tried to reduplicate um, Kitsap's effort was Pat Canem, a Snoqualmie leader. And probably around 1847, 48, two, Ameri- uh, yeah, two Americans go to Whidbey Island, Glasgow and Rabison. And they, were, they had been settling in the, the Olympia area, also around Toledo. And they, this is in the middle of a Cayuse War. And so what? You know, that's in the east of the mountains. The people here aren't warlike. And so they, they, but they row themselves. They don't hire an Indian crew, so they're apparently a little, uh, little and they go by way of Hood Canal, which uh, avoids most of the sound. And they end up on Whidbey, and uh, of all things, uh, Glasgow marries the daughter of Pat Canham. It's like, so Pat Canham uh, obviously wants some tie, but then they, uh, both Rabison and Glasgow witness what they say was a huge gathering of thousands of people. And there's a big debate about, well, what are we going to do with these Americans, uh, these Hudson's Bay companies and Americans? And a fellow named, uh, well, Pat Canham says, you know, we've got to get rid of them because they're going to take us all in ships and take us to a place called Polaki Ilahi, the land of darkness, and they're going to capture our land. And John Taylor, who's from... Uh, the village of Stillicum says, yes, I've been to their settlements. They're as thick as fleas, and they don't, you know, nothing good can come from these people. And then a man, uh, his name was uh, Snohodomta. Um, he was prematurely gray. Uh, he gets up and he says, well, you know, before the Americans came, I've had trouble with the Snoqualmie always coming down and raiding us. Now that the Americans are there, I don't have this problem anymore, so why do you want to get rid of them? And um, and then the Duwamish chief, he's identified as a Duwamish chief, stands up and he says, you know, for those people that uh, are troubled by raids going south, I and my people will stand and protect you. And Snohodumpta says, I'd rather have one American with a rifle than all of the Duwamish. And so the place just collapses in, in divisiveness. And then there's a threat that uh, the Pat Canyon is going to kill Glasgow and Rabison, but blame Snohodumta so that the Americans will attack his village. And so these two guys leave. And they come back to Olympia with these stories. We just narrowly avoided death, and the, the Indians are planning to wipe us out. Well, actually, something was going on, because 
there were all sorts of uh, uh, warnings given to um, Hudson's Bay Company personnel around that time. Snoqualmie said they'd come down, they'd have the head of a man named Joseph Heath who had a farm down there. Um, uh, a, a, a Whidbey Island um, Skagit man, Sneedlum, attacks an embassy sent north of Vancouver or Van, uh, Fort Langley. This had never happened before. So something was happening. Well, in May 1st, and I think it's 1849, Pat Canham and a bunch of armed Snoqualmies come down to Fort Nisqually and uh, they, the, you know, Hudson Bay Company is saying, you know, you're threatening us, you're all armed, what is this? And they said, well, we're just having trouble with Lachlet, who is a Nisqually Indian, because he's mistreating his wife. And so they, Pat Canham goes into the fort to, uh, and gifts are given to the armed men, and then somebody in the fort is cleaning his rifle and he shoots. And all of a sudden, the Suquamish, of course, they, they've got Pat Cannon. They've killed him. So they, they charge the fort. And a big shootout occurs, and uh, two Americans are killed. Well, now it's gone to blood. This is, of course, after the Cayuse War, but this is in western Washington. So um, Oregon territory, well, Oregon has just gained territorial status. And so um, the, Indian, the American Indian agent, Thornton, sends a message to the new governor, um, Lane, you know, We've had this attack. There's these Americans killed. So they rush troops into western, into the Puget Sound region, and uh, they threaten to wipe out the Indians unless they surrender the people that were involved in the killing of the two Americans. Of course, several Indians were killed too, but they didn't come. So in any case, they surrendered. And so they said, we will give 80, 80 blankets for the uh, people who are guilty, or, or if, you, if it waits too long, we'll double the amount. <laughs> so who shows up with them but Pat Canham? They're his brothers. And uh, he surrenders them, and he gets 80 blankets, he and the other Snoqualmie, uh, other Snoqualmie chiefs. And Thornton is just amazed. Why did you do that? This is a stupid thing to do. You're giving blankets to the people who arranged this attack on Fort Nisqually, but this is a typical American bureaucratic snafu. Well, anyway, they hold the, the court proceeding. They trot out these uh, these. Uh, Snoqualmie, they have defense attorneys given, uh, appointed to uh, represent them, the prosecution, within, they have a trial, they have a grand jury first, and then they, they indict these guys, and then they go to trial, and three are found guilty, and they are hung. And the whole Snoqualmie tribe is required to be present to see this is what American justice does. Um, and apparently there was a, a great number of other people too, and apparently Seattle was among them. So this, it seems to me, this beginning where Seattle's thinking, okay, now wait a minute. You know, if these people are going to do all this because two of them got killed, we need to really think what we're going to do here. We have to really examine this because he's actually probably one of the chiefs that um, uh, Thornton and the other officials invite to Fort Nisqually to they, and they ask him, you know, so how, do you, how is authority uh, distributed amongst your people? And they give these chiefs uh, blankets, and Seattle is probably one of them. These are never named. These chiefs are never named. But by this time, he is already a significant person, uh, a frightening person. Um, by 18, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Anyway, so this trial happens, and um, it's kind of a turning point for Seattle. And so, you know, if you can't 
if you can't lick them, join them. Pat Cannon will come to the same conclusion. Chetsamoka at uh, Port Townsend will do the same thing. We have to find some way to deal with these people, and one of the ways is intermarry with them. Marry into their, into their society. Um, shortly after that, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure if I've got this correct, Seattle is involved in a genocidal war against the Chemicum of uh, where uh, Port Townsend is now. And there's all this back and forth. A shaman is killed, not the one that Seattle killed, but a shaman is killed. And um, they blame, it's a Clallam person that kills a shaman, but the Clallam don't want to um, be blamed. And so they convince Seattle, they said, look, the daughter of one of our chief will marry your son, Chakwal. And Chakwal is a warrior. And he is described as having a power uh, which is described as uh, driftwood eaten out by worms, which is an amazing image. It's like a heart voided of compassion or mercy during uh, battle. Now, it's like, so you get these extraordinary bits of information about these people in the midst of a vast desert without any more data. So you have to figure out, well, what in the world? Anyway, so uh, they decided, they decided, now the Chemicum, there is a long history I want to get into, but they are, they are, they are not sailor-speaking people. Uh, no one actually knows, you know, what they're related. They're probably related to the Cornell linguistically. But anyway, they're surrounded by enemies, and they've been reduced. And so... <clears throat> The Clallam and the, and the uh, uh, Suquamish decide to wipe them out. And so they do. They arrange this uh, attack at night. They surround the surviving uh, Chemicum village. This is around 1845. And um, at, at dawn, the, the, the person who shot the shaman goes out, probably to take a leak. He's shot down. The people wake up, and as they come pouring out of the village, the uh, warriors around just fire into them, and they wipe them out, slaughter them. And there's a great story about, um, previous to this, uh, when the shaman was killed, his relatives dug out the lead slug that had passed through him and gone into the wall, and they hammered it back into shape and vowed to return it to the the person who shot him. And so um, when, at the end of this massacre of the Chemicum, Seattle's son is leading it. Seattle's there too, and he's shot with the same with the same bullet. They say, and as he goes to the ground, Seattle cries out, "Oh, my son, my son! He is down. He is down." Again, we have these quotes. These are not created by white people or historians. These are what the native people remembered. And again, you have these, this extraordinary moment, full of detail and drama, in. It's the oasis in the desert of non-unknowing. Well, anyway, so that also, that seals his reputation. Seattle is one frightening person. Uh, and yet, he makes this change uh, after the trial of Pat Canham, and he decides he, he's nothing if not single-minded. And that, okay, the Americans, because the British are already leaving. Uh, the Treaty of Washington has already divided partitioned Oregon so the Americans get south of 49, the British get north. So they're already separating, and the Indians, of course, are aware of this. And so the, Mar- the Americans are in charge, and the Americans mean business. They've already been involved in one fight, the Cayuse War, and now they've arranged this really spectacular show trial in which they've hung these people and threatened to exterminate everybody else if they cause trouble. So what are you going to do? So then Seattle moves down to Olympia, and he sets up shop at a place called Chinook Street. 
And, you know, it's like, well, how am I going to find out about Chinook Street? So I've got two or three sources that talk about it. So then I write down, well, you write to the Thurston County Historical Society. And they go, oh, yeah, Chinook Street. You know, we've heard about this. We have these bits of information. So you pull it all together. And it's not just Seattle, but he's there. And it's described in, in, a, in an 1860 uh, diary. Seattle is Duwamish are down in Chinook Street, and this is a guy that expects to be noticed, and he'll give you a shake of the hand and with a grunt, knows that, uh, you know, that he, uh, he knows that you're there. And why he's there is he's, he's basically getting people to go on these tours to his uh, homeland, and he's, he wants to get Americans into trade. Because if they'll trade, like the Hudson's Bay, he and his people will become wealthy and better if he intermarries with them, then you've got this hybrid society which basically should solve a lot of the problems that these two contending societies face. So this is where the Denny party... Oh, we're not even there yet? yet. Oh, no. <laughs> you got a long way to go. So, so these people start showing up. Luther Collins, he gets taken on a tour of, uh, of, of the... Well, first, it's... Um, Holgate, Milton, one of the Holgates, and he's taken up, and they, he takes them, the people associated with Seattle, take him to this village that's located where uh, Boeing Fields is today, and uh, they're known as the proud people or the confident people, and he loves it, and he describes in detail the planks that they have, they're 50 or 60 feet long, they're two and a half feet wide, two inches thick, beautiful workmanship, he's very impressed with this, and he stakes his claim but he, forget, he, he doesn't know that the donation land law, which Congress had just passed, required that you were supposed to write down where this was uh, with the uh, officials. So he goes back to get married in Ohio. In the meantime, Luther Collins comes up. He's taken on a tour of, uh, of um, the Duwamish River, but there's just too many Indians. So he goes back down to the Nisqually, where there are more Americans. Some other people um, show up, um, uh, Van Asselt, the maples, and he said, well, why don't you live with me in the Nisqually? And they look at they're not too pleased with the land available. They say, well, okay, I know of another place that's pretty good, and if you don't mind living with a lot of Indians, uh, you might like that. So he takes them up to the Duwamish, and they like it, and so they settle there in, 18, in 1850. Seattle has another group. Now, he actually has people living there, and according to a memory, he's there waving as they bring their gear around Duwamish head, uh, then, back in Olympia, he meets Charles Fay. Now, this is the figure. This is the figure that really brings about settlement in Elliott Bay. And Charles Fay is, is a mercantile uh, entrepreneur. He's headquartered in San Francisco at the corner of California and Pine. He has an office there. And they basically um, find stuff to sell. And then they'll offer it uh, to groups who buy it, and then they'll make a certain cut of the profit. And so... He had been, uh, Faye had been sailing around the Pacific. He was a whaler, and uh, he had been on uh, Puget Sound before. And so he conceives the idea, if I barrel salmon, if I catch salmon and barrel them and bring them to California, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I asked an Indian, I was in Nepal, and I asked an Indian agricultural officer, well, what can we grow here that the Nepalese can export to India? And he goes, they'll eat any damn thing you give them. It was kind of like that. You know, anything you sell to San Francisco, they'll eat any damn thing you give them. And so this has got to really work. And so Faye gets a Swedish carpenter, Charles Martin, and they set up shop with Seattle. Seattle invites them up. 
and they set up shop at this village at the at Duwamish Head. Seattle has 700 native people. Thomas Prosh gives us the number, the historian Thomas Prosh. And uh, they're catching all these salmon, bringing them in. They're brining them in the barrels, and then they, they tap the bungs in, and then they take them down to Olympia, and they transship them from there down to San Francisco. So this is a, a, a really a remarkable thing. So this is the first industry on Elliott Bay. Faye is down to, at Olympia getting a shipment ready to go to San Francisco. Who shows up? David Denny Charlie De- and Charlie Terry. And he said, and so that we're looking for a place um, to settle. Oh, I've just got the place for you because I've got this Indian chief and he wants Americans there. Come with me. And so he brings David Denny and Charles Terry North and uh, they go with him. And sure enough, there's Seattle and the thing is just going great guns. And then, and so they show him, they said, this is fantastic. And so David Denny scribbles the fateful note. Have uh, visited the... Uh, Duwamish River, it's great, uh, room enough for a thousand people, come at once. Now this is one of those, like the Zimmerman telegram, I mean, this is a fateful message, because what it is, it's, it's the death knell of native culture in um, the uh, Elliott Bay, in, it's in Puget Sound, but it's also the realization of Seattle's dream. In 1850, while all this is happening, three other men show up in Olympia, um, Isaac Eby, Benjamin Franklin Shaw and a man named Lindsay, and they get in a longboat and they sail up. They're invited to sail up north to Elliott Bay and they land when a first salmon ceremony is in session. Hundreds of people celebrating and they were shooting rifles in the air, so this is an electrifying um, welcome. The people rush down to the shore, they pull up the longboat onto the, onto the beach and who shows up? Seattle steps out, stands on a log, and he says, don't be afraid. This is the kind of greeting we normally give to the first salmon of the season and also to the governor of the Hudson's Bay Company when he comes, and he's referring to a visit that George Simpson made in Port of Victoria a few years before. And we're glad to welcome you here because we need everything you can make. This is Seattle talking to Benjamin Franklin Shaw and Isaac Eby. We need everything you can make, because we don't know how to make it, but we, we want to trade with you. We want you here. And, oh, by the way, why is it you find, you just come, you trust yourself to come amongst us in so few numbers? Now, this is probably a set piece, because later, uh, 50 years later, this appears in print. And I believe it's... Um, Shaw, who writes, and then I gave a speech saying, we come from the land of the sunrise, we are, you know, there are millions of us, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But anyway, and then they attend a, um, apparently, a secret society initiation. So this is, Seattle is trying to demonstrate to him his people's life and invite them in. Now, do we know that Seattle said that? Well, probably he did. First of all, it's unlike anything ever written uh, by anybody else where they have like Henry Smith's speech where it's filled with his oral tongue, um, purple prose. This is very direct. It just sounds like what a native person would say. But also, there's all these other people going up. So it, it fits with all this other stuff that's happening. So they, he takes them on a tour. They see Lake Washington. They see the, the White River, the trail going over the passes that ends on Lake Washington. And they write a big description of it that appears in the Oregon Spectator. So all this advertising is bringing all these people in. So in November, um, the Denny party shows up. Now, that's when everything gets complicated. (laughs) If it's not complicated enough already. 
because the donation land law has basically said to the Americans, well, you know, we'll offer you 320 acres for a man, 320 acres for a woman, free, all you got to do is live on it for four or five years, improve it, mean build a house and stay there. But they don't, the Americans don't have title to the land. They have never had a treaty with the Indians to relinquish title to the land. So they've got to do that, but they're in busy offering the, the Indians' land to these new American settlers who come in. Initially, as pioneers, they're coming in hopefully to make a, a life in uh, the Northwest. But now they're coming in to get what's, what's theirs. Um, the government has already given them this land. All they've got to do now is get in there and claim it. A totally different attitude. When um, they come, of course, when the Denny Party comes, they start laying out claims. Well, while this is going on, other Indians get involved. For example, um, a chief of the, of the Duwamish, his name is Question, he comes down the river to Arthur Denny, who is the Taiyi of the Americans, and he asks him to give his sons Boston names. He has three sons. One is named William one is named Tecumseh, one is named Keokuk. These are the names that Arthur Denny gave him. Uh, so um, naming, of course, is a very important custom. And that he was asking Arthur Denny to give us Boston names so we can get along better with one another. Um, shortly after this, Henry Yesler, well, um, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Faye has another bunch of barrels to go down to Olympia of Salmon. So he goes down there. And the first, uh, the first shipment hasn't turned out well. They've all rotted. And so he accompanies this second shipment down there, and he basically leaves. So Seattle's left holding the bag. So Seattle goes down to Olympia. He's at Duwamish Head, but he goes down to Olympia to get a person to replace, replace Faye. And who does he find? David Maynard. And so he says to David Maynard, okay, look, I've got this place. You're going to love it. There's hunting, fishing there. There's lots of Indian labor. Uh, I can provide you with whatever labor you want. They will make you rich. So this is his spiel. And so he convinces uh, Maynard to come up, and he said, oh, and by the way, I'll throw in a granddaughter for you. And so Maynard, of course, um, has taken up with Catherine Brochures, um, but he already has a wife in Iowa. So Catherine Brochures' brother, I believe, or cousin, is Michael Simmons. He certainly doesn't want his relative to be involved in a bigamous relationship. So the Olympia businessmen invite Maynard to leave. Of course, Maynard has come from California with a whole shipload of used junk that he sells at low prices and undercuts the sales of people in Olympia. So they want him out of there. And so Seattle sees his moment, so he gives him his spiel, and he says, and I will give you my granddaughter, Betsy. Fine. Okay, so they go north. Now, it takes them four days to go north. That's normally a one-day trip from Olympia to Seattle, or two at the most, but four days. So what are we to make of that? Well, that's because Seattle is reorganizing the fishery, making contacts. Okay, we're back in business again. And so they come around um, the uh, Duwamish head, and Seattle shows him where the fishery is, but he takes him across the bay to where Pioneer Square is now. And he wants Maynard to settle there. But there's a problem because the pioneers have already claimed the land. Seattle wants to give Maynard land on which to build the fishery, to operate the fishery on the east side of the bay, not the west. But the land's been claimed. Now, this is a very crucial part of the story of Seattle and Maynard 
relationship with Seattle. And what's really interesting is what's been written down, what's been remembered, and what the conversation was. Because when they invite Maynard to settle there with them, he says no. He says, I've only come here to fish. Well, what if we move our land, move our claims? So what they're doing is we'll move our claims, and Seattle will be gave you, to, able to give you the land he promised you. This is a very different view of the settlement of Seattle. And it's basically based on, the, on Maynard's refusal. I don't want to, you know, he's with this chief. He doesn't want to embarrass him. The guy is scary. What might he do? But in any case, uh, they, he agrees. And so within a day or two, the Indians build him a house, and he starts selling his junk out of the house and sleeping in the attic with Betsy. Now, shortly after that, uh, Maynard uh, is one of the people who's involved in the effort to separate, divide Oregon Territory into the state of Oregon, Washington Territory. And he goes down to um, Salem and gets a divorce from his wife. But he also arranges to have Betsy given to another settler. His man is Stephen Foster, who lives on the White River. That doesn't go well. Ultimately, Betsy will hang herself. And that causes a huge problem because the resident minister, David Blaine, Foster goes and he says, can we have the funeral there? He goes, well, no, we can't because, first of all, you weren't married in the church and she's not a Christian. She's a Catholic. I can't bury you. And so they arrange a native burial. And it's a huge, huge embarrassment. Shortly after that, um, well, during that time, they name this town, the settlement after Seattle. Now, think about this. This is a settlement where there's probably 100 native people at Zizilalich. There are 12 settlers. And they're arranged in um, uh, holdings, homesteads, which require them to live way far apart from one another. So this is a, basically, it's a small white neighborhood in a much larger Indian village. And who's brought them there? Seattle. So in the stories that come down to us, they say, well, we, we didn't know what to name it. The name was Duwamish. That was the first name. Interestingly, the settlers called uh, Suquamish, uh, Duwamish had Suquamish, because of Suquamish, um, because of the trade that had taken place there, because that was New York Alki, and there was already great trade going there. Um, they were prevalent there. But uh, Seattle wanted to move them over because if you, you know, one trading entrepreneur is great, but if you have two, that's even better. So he starts Maynard store there. And so now they've got two trading posts, um, but it's called Duwamish because that's where the Duwamish live. But then they supposedly got around and they, what do we call this place? Um, we'll call it Seattle because it sounds nice. No, that's not why they called it Seattle. They called it Seattle because he was responsible for creating it in the first place. He was an impresario, exactly as the Spanish used the term a person who was responsible for the maintenance of the village. He made sure they weren't killed when people got angry at them. He basically convinced his own people to support this experiment of his on Elliott Bay. And for a while, it worked. End of answer. (laughs) So so, when they decided to name it after Seattle, mm-hmm. what was that discussion like? Well, Just so, tell us a little bit about yeah. that. And, and also, uh, was he compensated okay. for the name? Very good. Okay. 
Well, first of all, it wasn't a new thing for people to name villages after Indians, at least where the settlers came from, the Denny Party came from. Now, think about this. Think of the three largest cities in Oregon, Portland, what, Eugene, Salem. What are the largest cities in um, Washington? Seattle, Tacoma, Spokane, named after Indians. Uh, all sorts of Indian uh, stream names in Oregon are not named after Indians, almost all of them, in, uh, the big streams in, in, in Washington are. So it's like, for some reason, some cultural difference, it's where they came from. So many of the settlers from Oregon came from states that were south of Illinois, India, or the southern parts, the butternuts in southern Illinois. The people who came to Seattle were essentially Yankees, and they seemed to just have had a different attitude. And so naming things after Indians was not that uncommon. But to get to the point of, well, why did they name it Seattle? Arthur Denny is the one who talks about this, and he said the, the choice was unanimous. We don't know who proposed it, but whoever did, the choice was unanimous. And then they later said, well, because it sounded nice. Now, this is an interesting event, and it is part of a pattern um, of rewriting history that is unique to Seattle. Uh, if you go to Portland, Portland is uh, focused on its history far more than Seattle is. Uh, you go down, there's these parks in central uh, uh, Portland. You have all these statues there. They were there long before Seattle had its first statue, its first public art, which was the statue of Chief Seattle. But in any case, uh, Oregonians and Portland people are more focused on their history than people here. And um, I'm, I cannot remember his name now. Uh, anyway, it was an historian who said that it was interesting that history in Washington comes in waves. And we see it happening. For example, you've got the Yakima War in the 1850s, and it, it's not even over with. And then you've got the, the Fraser River Stampede, this gold rush that comes in and allows people to put all those bad memories out of their minds, and then they just focus on the future. I just read somewhere, I don't know whether it was Steve Jobs, somebody said Seattle is always the future, always the future. It's because they routinely ignore the past. It's just too difficult to deal with. Um, and so that happens. Okay, so, but we see, we see germs of that happening. For example, the first church service in Seattle, which was, uh, first of all, it was said to be Benjamin Close in Yesler's store. But then somebody said, well, no, actually there was one before, and that was when Bishop um, Demers who was heading up to uh, British Columbia, he was one of the very first Catholic priests in the 1830s in the Oregon country, stops at Seattle and uh, celebrates Mass in Yesler's Cook Shack. This is April, excuse me, August 22nd, 1850, I think, 52. And um, Seattle is at the altar boy. So this is the memory. The only problem with it, Yesler wouldn't show up until October. So where does this happen? Well, it happens in Denny's cabin. And it's not a mass, it's a prayer service. You wouldn't hold a mass for, I mean, these are Baptists and Methodists from Illinois. What are you going to do? But there he is. Uh, Demers comes, he, he offers this prayer service, and then he delivers a sermon. And uh, one of the Denny daughters remembered, it's the first sermon she ever remembered. And she remembered him intoning in his Quebecois accent, charity, my friends, charity. And he was inviting the Americans not just to be charitable to one another, but to the native people as well. Um, Demers had been in the eastern part of the territory during the uh, Cayuse War. He knew how easy it was for relations to go to blood. And it was if, if the two communities were to prosper, they had to live in the same household with a certain respect and affection. So that was his sermon. Um, but it gets changed around because 
Now, these are rustics. Uh, I, I, I don't know that anybody in Denny Party had more than an eighth grade education, which is probably to their benefit. Because later when you had middle class whites coming in like the Blaines, uh, Reverend David Blaine and his wife Catherine, who are very literate people, who write letters saying the most horrible things, not just about native people, but about the settlers too. Uh, they're very critical. But um, uh, they also, uh, they, the, the settlers had enough problems dealing with these professionals coming in they didn't want it said that they had actually attended a Catholic service in the cabin of one. So they move it to Yesler's cook shack, even though it'll be a couple of months before he even shows up. It's a way of deflecting criticism. This happens a lot. There are lots of episodes like this. And the story of the naming of Seattle is one of those. We did it because it, it just sounded nice. It was so much better than those other names, like uh, Zia Zia Lalag and Muck, muck one. But it wasn't Seattle. I mean, how do you pronounce the name? Seattle. Seattle. I mean, it's like, how are you going to pronounce it? It's impossible to pronounce. There was nothing easy about it. But he was the guy that made this possible. And he had given his granddaughter to Maynard, who shucked her off on um, uh, Stephen Foster. Um, they had claimed the land that he had wanted to give. So this was an honor that Maynard thought would go toward restoring some of the amity he had. Well, of course, they were stunned when Seattle was not at all pleased by this. And there was a reason for it. Now, it's like, supposedly Angeline said, well, the, you know, when he dies, he'd revolve in his grave and all that. And Well, no. Using a person's name without, it was like a trademark or a copyright. You didn't just use a person's name without some remuneration. If you happen to use an ancestral name that was shared with another family, you had to pay that family for the, for the ability to do that. And not only that, they're naming a place after him. It already has a name, Tsitsi Lalich. And I'm sure Seattle was horrified. I mean, it's like, how presumptuous to take my name and impose it on this very ancient native settlement. So he was not at all pleased. And so he said, you know, okay, look, you want to use my name? Pay me. Ezra Meeker said they paid him an unnamed sum. We don't know how much it was. But several people have said that they paid him. And a, a man named Hezekiah Butterworth, who was, um, I think he was, um, I'm trying to remember the news magazine that he was a, a, a person that re reported from. But anyway, he wrote down that Seattle said, look, the trouble I'm going to have from this, you better pay me now for the trouble I'm going to endure from this later on. <clears throat> now, that, Hezekiah Butterworth in, interpreted that as when he was dead, but I suspect Seattle was frankly shocked that they would use his name to name a place and the trouble he was going to experience. He was already in trouble amongst his people for supporting the Americans as much as he was, and he could see this was obviously going to be causing problems. So <clears throat> about this legend-making about mm -hmm. Chief Seattle, uh, I, I went online to get excerpts from this famous speech yes. that Chief Seattle got. And I wanted to just read a couple. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, he, if, you, if you look at the speech, the quotes from it, he's uh, an environmentalist. Yes. He's a, a well, deeply that, spiritual Well, there's several man. versions of the speech. Yes, right, very yeah. So, you know, the, the first ones that pop up have to do with the change. Uh, tribe follows tribe and nation follows nation like the waves of the sea. 
it is the order of nature and regret is useless. Mm -hmm. uh, man does not weave this web of life. Okay, that's a much later. He is merely yeah. a strand of it. Well, we'll, we'll get that to that. Well, okay, okay. Just let me read yeah, a couple yeah. of these. I was just and suggest you can, the part that you read. Then yeah. you can come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, man does not weave his web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. Mm -hmm. When the last red man okay. shall have perished yes. from the earth and his memory among the white men shall become a myth, the shores will swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not powerless. Yeah. And uh, th these go on and on. This is from BrainyQuote.com. <laughs> yes, yes. And there are five pages oh, yeah, of yeah. just Chief Seattle well, quotes. Well, you know, there's the so, 1887 Smith speech which he was apparently writing long before that. Uh, there are letters. Smith was an Henry, This is Henry Smith, Dr. Henry Smith, who comes, I think, 1852, <clears throat> and um, plays a really significant role in Seattle's pioneer history. And was very long-lived. Um, ended up Smith Cove is named after him. He later moves up to the Snohomish River, Smith Island, and the mouth of the Snohomish named after him. Um, he always hoped that he would prosper. He came out here for that, and eventually he did. But uh, he wrote many articles in newspapers uh, about he was always trying to get people. He was like a Seattle in a sense. He was trying to get people to move to the Snohomish River. And so he would write these glowing accounts, but nobody would ever go there. And so um, he, he ended up taking odd jobs, one of which was the physician at the Tulalip Indian Reservation after it had been uh, designated as a reservation. And he tried his hand at all sorts of genres, and one was ethnology. And so he wrote Our Aborigines, I think in 1873. And so he's writing about the Snoqualmie. And it's the craziest thing you've ever read, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, he talks about the, uh, he tries the, uh, the Nurhudams, these are the Hudab, these are the, the uh, shamanistic um, spirits. He calls them Nurhudams, and then there are the imps, and all these. And it's just a hodgepodge of stuff. Uh, and he tries to make sense of it. And then he throws in all these uh, really cruel statements about the people. You know, if they, uh, if they don't, uh, if civilization doesn't take among them, then they better hunt their ancestors in the happy hunting ground. And he's commonly doing that. He, he likes to throw in mordant humor in whatever he writes. He was very popular uh, back in the 1890s, 90s. But then, uh, as a, uh, as a um, physician at the Tulalip Reservation in the 1870s, just before he, he worked there for years, and nothing they can do can stop the death rate amongst the Native people. And it's uh, one thing after another. Of course, these are people who have been pushed around uh, and their um, society has been so fractured that even collecting food is difficult for them. Fishing is one thing, but they, they were farmers as well. This is not often understood, that these people were farmers. They just didn't plant things in rows. So when the settlers saw, saw their fields, they go, oh, look, a meadow. Let's, let's graze our animals then. They would eat all the Indian plants. But in any case, so these were people who were really suffering a lot, and uh, they were uh, afflicted by all sorts of diseases. Uh, in any case, their population was in decline. And Smith was just frustrated as anything because he was legitimately trying to do what he could, but he couldn't, he couldn't figure out why the death rate amongst Native people was so high. So he wrote a letter to Father Shrews, who was the head of the Tulalip uh, Reservation at the time. This is in 1873, just as he resigns as a uh, physician. And he says, you know, maybe races are like people. They're born, they're vigorous, 
they get old, they're at the top of the, of the, of the, the pack, and then they decline and they enter a dotage and eventually they die. And maybe that happens to races like the Indians. Maybe they too just die out. And this was a common uh, idea bandied about by Americans, even during the reservation period. I think it was uh, George Gibbs um, or Michael Simmons, who was the Indian agent for Puget Sound, said, you know, the Indian people even look forward to extinction. They can't wait. And, and this was a common theme. Now, the interesting thing about Seattle was Seattle was doing everything he could to get people in here, Americans in here, to intermarry so that both groups could prosper. He envisioned a robust hybrid community. This was, you know, to Americans, this was absolutely shocking. You mean commit racial suicide by intermarrying? Now, the settlers, uh, the early settlers, really didn't have much of a problem with that. Uh, Elwood Evans, who was an early uh, historian, wrote that 75% estimated 70 to 75% of the single native, uh, single American men who lived outside of the big towns had married native women. Uh, when Ozzie Mercer tries to bring in these uh, women from uh, New England to Seattle, what's he doing it for? To prevent racial suicide. Because you want white women to do that. Well, they said there's not, a, there's not enough women available. There were plenty of women available. They were just native women. And God forbid that you would have the Americans commit racial suicide like that. So that's sort of the dark underbelly of the Mercer uh, experiment. But in any case, um, Seattle wanted intermarriage. Uh, and so when he tells Isaac Stevens, like, oh, our days are numbered, you know, we're soon going to disappear and all that, that's such baloney. I mean, Seattle envisioned his people to be the robust partners they already were with the Americans. The white population would not exceed the native population of the, city of, the town of Seattle until the, the mid-1860s. Up until that time, the native people were always... Uh, in the majority. And they were vigorous um, uh, participants in the economy. So vigorous, the first counterfeiting scheme in Seattle is actually created by a native man who forges Henry Yesler's brass tokens. I mean, that's how, that's how involved they were. Uh, with the, so, but there is, so I have, a, have to, had to examine the speech. Let me, so I've got eight chapters in this book of ten chapters that deal with the life of Seattle. I have two chapters dealing with the afterlife of Seattle because that is probably what most people are best are most familiar with and they're also very important. What have we done with uh, Seattle? And um, uh, one of the the speech I think the speech is the greatest impediment to our understanding of Seattle because we just assume well this is how he thought this is how he was the speech is Henry Smith's, but it's easily the best thing Henry Smith ever wrote. And it's also completely unlike anything he ever wrote. So he's obviously working from something that's good. So then I set to work, well, what could it be? And I think I've figured out what Seattle might have said. There's a very interesting dialectic that occurs in the speech and first, Seattle welcomes Stevens, puts his hand on his head, welcomes Stevens, uh, and says, you know, well, you, you know the, now Stevens has already spoken to him. I, the great father has sent me here. We're going to take care of you just as we would our children. And so Seattle says, well, that's really nice of him, but I don't know why he would do that. Um, we're not at all alike. We're very different. And then he starts this dialectic. You people believe this. We believe that. You do this. We do that. We believe 
that when we die, our spirits stay here on the land. You've left the homes of your ancestors. And when your ancestors, when your people die, you don't even know where they go to some they go to some place beyond the stars. The point is, our dead are here. You're dead, we don't know where they are. Now, we're few and you're many, but we've been here a lot longer than you, so our dead are very many. Your dead are few, and the dead are not powerless. So what I think Seattle is doing is he's putting it to Governor Stevens. His words are, you must deal kindly and compassionately with our people. You must do that. And he weaves this dialectic as a rhetorical device to say, because we believe these things, you also believe it ghosts. Now, there's a very interesting thing. It it's appears in the Pioneer Democrat in 1853, and somebody has written the article, Are Immortal Dead? Uh, you know, how, how much we think about them, how they, they come and they, they console us and all this. This is an American writing in an American newspaper in Puget Sound. Seattle knows that the Americans believe in ghosts and they think about these things. So he's dealing, he's trying to make a point that the dead are not powerless. That is, there is a, the universe, what do they say? You know, the arc of justice is long, uh, long uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And those are not Seattle's words, but the point is that's the point of the, of the thought, is that if, we, if you believe in justice, which you claim you do, and we believe in justice, then justice is treating us with kindness and compassion, because if you don't, the dead are not powerless. Now, I believe that's what Seattle said. And Henry Smith said he wrote notes down as it was spoken. Now, they claim Henry Smith was skilled in the Indian language. Well, he knew the Chinook jargon. Everybody got a smattering of, they were publishing Chinook jargon dictionaries in the Pioneer and Democrat almost on a monthly basis. He didn't speak, no one, or very, very few people were able to speak the native language. Um, But anyway, that's irrelevant because Seattle's words were first translated from the native into Chinook jargon and then from the Chinook jargon into English. So Isaac Stevens would understand what Seattle was saying. So Smith was jotting down the English translations of what Seattle said via the Chinook jargon. Well, God knows what that could have been, but he got some of it, and I believe what he got is what I've just described. Interesting. How are we doing on time? Is it time for Q, Q&A? Good, okay. okay. He, uh, let, me, let me repeat that. Okay, yeah, yeah, the, sure. So, uh, yeah, did, did Chief Seattle see Vancouver's sales? Yeah, he, he claimed he did. Um, there was a diary written in Olympia around 1860, and they said he claims uh, he will tell any American he meets that he remembered the great Vancouver. Now, uh, Bancroft, who wrote the history of the West, um, says that's just bunkum, but that's Bancroft. Um, and uh, there's no reason why Seattle would have said that, and, uh, and I believe he did. I certainly believe he was there. The, that also, that appearance, I mean, literally, out of nowhere comes... This ship, this western ship, many people are just scared to death. They think the world is ending, but some say, ochida, ochida, wonderful, look at this. And some people knew. As a matter of fact, Kitsap, in a winter dance, held a bead up about a year before Vancouver and said to these people, you know, in a year or in a little while, the people who make these things are going to come and visit us. So he, a lot of Suquamish had been up to uh, the Straits. Uh, They were commonly there. 
so anyway, they had seen the trade ships, and he said they will eventually come here. And he, was, he knew what he was talking about. But they show up, and they stay for 10 days at Restoration Point, and the Indians are trading things with them, and Vancouver and his men are trading belt buckles and buttons and shoe buckles and sheets of copper and all sorts of stuff. Um, and they make the Suquamish and the Duwamish people the richest people on, Pug- on Puget Sound. So, my God, it's after that that Kitsap has his idea. And, and according to the person, it was E.E. E. Bertelson, uh, a Kitsap County historian, said, well, the reason why Kitsap built the uh, old man house was because he wanted to have some place ready so when the white man returned, uh, they would, he, there would be some place to greet him. It's like the cargo cults in the South Pacific. But I think that's a misinterpretation. I think what Kitsap, he was dealing with these invasions from the north that he needed to, his people needed to confront. So he creates this alliance with the old manhouse. But that wasn't the end of the idea. The idea was we need to organize ourselves in a larger than just individual villages. We need to organize ourselves to be able to confront the changes that are obviously coming our way. And the white people are going to be one of these and we need to be ready for them. So I believe Kitsap is thinking in those strategic terms. It only makes sense when you try to put everything together and come up with that, that that would be the case. Another question? Yes. Yes. Yeah. David, first, uh, I just want to note how very apt it is that Seattle's uh, namesake and you children's town founder was a real estate promoter. <laughs> yes, yes. And... Second, other than the speech that he may or may not have written, did he ever express either any uh, foresight or afterward uh, regret about the doom? You know, it's, I've, I've been trying for all these years. Is there a way to actually get to what Seattle was saying? Because most of what he says are recorded by other people who write down this is what he said. Um, now, we, uh, the, there's a speech he gives to Michael Simmons where he's just just furious with the Americans. And, you know, he says, you say I'm a drunk, I'm not a drunk. I, we don't touch liquor. Uh, you promise us our trees, we never see any result. I am sick. When, my, when I die, my people will have no one to take care of them. I am sick and sad. I'm done. And so that speech is quoted in the Pioneer and Democrat. That seems pretty standard Seattle. Um, the one that Shaw uh, writes is one. And, but it's like, okay, so but who is this guy? Can you get into his head? And I think... I found a couple of things reported, not by Hoyts, but by Native people, remembered that he said, and one of them was the one I mentioned to you about Leshai, don't kill all these people, especially not the ones that have married Indian women. But there's another thing, and supposedly his niece, Amelia Sneetlam, remembered, said that when he was at Point Elliot, he said to his people, um, um, observe the changers. Now, he called the American the changers. And the changer was a mythological figure in Puget Salish culture that happened in this Gotterdammerung when the mythic world literally capsized and a new world came into being the human world. And the changer came and um, taught the people how to live in this new world. And he traveled up the rivers. One of the places he stopped at before he traveled up the rivers was Muckleteal, Point Elliot where the treaty happened. And so his remarks to the native people, observe the changers, is reminding the people, you remember the first changer he landed here? Well, look at them. The Americans are here. Examine the changers. Look at what they do, because our progeny 
will be like them. Now, basically, he wasn't the only one saying these things. We have to adapt. We have to learn from them because they're basically in, in control of the future, and we have to find some way to live with this. So there's that. And there's that one where he is at Titi Lalich, and he's going up to Fort Victoria to get blankets for a potlatch, and he tells his people, I'm going to Fort Victoria. When you hear it thunder, you will know that I'm on my way back. Now, Seattle's power, he had, a, he had several supernatural guardians, and one of them was thunder. Where did he get this power? Are you ready for this? Lake Burien. <laughs> lake Burien. Um, the, the name of the lake was Thunder. And, of course, back then it was surrounded by forest. And that whole highland between Duwamish Head and Browns Point in Tacoma was a land filled with mythological, violent mythological references, remembering the Osceola Lehar that came down and literally joined the islands of the mainland about 6,300 years ago. There's even a myth that talks about Mount Rainier's head disappearing. So they remember this. Well, anyway, um, he, um, he says, you know, when you hear thunder, I will, you know I'm on my way back. To find anything comparable like that in the Western tradition, you have to go back before Homer, where people believe, and we call it magical thinking, but what it is, it's this very... Um, unscientific, you might say, but to me, it's you know, a, a deeply human way of looking at the, the cosmos, the world. You project um, the human personality onto the, compost, onto the cosmos to make it understandable. So you give will to forces of nature. Science is actually the same thing. It's just that it's in a more mathematical uh, language. But he's saying, uh, he thinks, he believes that I can call forth thunder. His people believed that he could call forth thunder. Now, there was a wonderful story about him. And this is, again, from Amelia Sneetlam, his niece, who says, Seattle had thunder power. It was a big power, that power of Seattle. And when he shook, he, would, he had these little duck rattles. And when he would be in the winter dances, he would shake his duck rattles and sing the song of power that power taught him at the bottom of Lake Burien uh, during the winter dances. And he said, Seattle um, had this great power. When he was angry at people, it was the people who shook. It was a wonderful turn of phrase. He would shake the duck rattles, but when he was angry at people and he yelled at them, they were the ones who shook because he had thunder power. He could scare the daylights out of anyone. I think we have one more question. Anybody? Yeah. David? Uh, who does uh, Seattle remind you of in history or among other yeah. You admire him. I do. Um, he, he is a great figure. I mean, he is a Homeric figure. He is just an extraordinary person. Um, and his ideas, we only now are beginning to un- even understand his idea of a hybrid racial culture, that that's where, that's where prosperity in the future lies. I mean, that was what he believed. It is in a hybrid racial culture that our future rests. It took Americans over 150 years to even 
admit to the possibility that that could be something worthwhile. And so, is he a worthy eponym of the city? Absolutely. Is the city worthy of its eponym? Jury's still out. We don't know. Uh, who is he like? Uh, I would start with uh, uh, Powhatan on, uh, in uh, Jamestown who, through Pocahontas, is trying to develop... You know, the interesting thing is, you, start, you hear the story about James... You know, the Spaniards were there 20 years before, and they hung several Indian rebels on yard arms from their ships five miles below Jamestown. Most Americans have no idea that there's this really complicated and violent history that takes place right at the site of Jamestown, years before Jamestown was even founded. And so Powhatan and a lot of other Native people are trying to make sense of these. They keep coming. They keep coming. Um, so he uses his daughter, Pocahontas, to, try, to intermarry with, with uh, Rolf. And uh, give, he gives Rolf land. And that, that, that family still survives today. Well, that's a common theme. One of the saddest things, I think, is um, when Vancouver comes... And he sh- shows up. Uh, the people look, achada, achada, wonderful. They sail around. They paddle around the ship, the discovery. And uh, they sing a song of greeting, and they're pounding on the gunnels of the canoes with their paddles. And Vancouver writes, it was not altogether uh, disagreeable, that this was a wonderful thing. And then you go back to the very first morning or afternoon in uh, 1492 when Columbus arrives at Guanahani, that little island, and the people come out and they say, you know, look here, the men from the heavens are here. And all that day, they're calling to the people on the time, come, come see the men from the heavens. Now, Columbus recorded this. And the most terrible thing is that evening, he writes in his log, and we know this because Bartolome de las Casas preserves that page of his log, these could be made into useful servants. Fifty people could control them. And what, do, what does Vancouver and his, and his officers say? Well, you know, the land is gorgeous. All it, has to be, all it has to be done is to be cultivated, and you can have these marvelous estates. The native people... Um, they're kind of dirty. And it's the same thing. It's like the story nine never changes. Uh, for 400 years, you know, Vancouver arrives within a couple of months of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing. I mean, that's just an extraordinary coincidence. But the fact that the storyline hasn't changed in 400 years, I find stunning. Um, so much so that it blinds us, really, to um, what the people are trying to say. I mean, how long have we been taught, you know, that uh, Pocahontas, you know, tried to save uh, John Smith and all this was a love story, and it wasn't. It was an attempt to create this bond. How many times have we uh, heard about Seattle? You know, oh, my people are going to die, you know, it's just really nice. But, you know, the dead are not. It's like the storyline never changes, and that's the real tragedy. And that's where I say, is the city worthy of its eponym? And I say the jury's still out. We're sort of getting there. And what has to happen is what is happening. We have lived long enough here to really develop a, a connection with the land. And then we develop a connection with the land's people. You know, it's interesting. 
there are all these uh, supernatural sites. So they start on uh, Hood Canal and they cross right here and they're earthquake sites. And you're not supposed to camp there because if you do, your, your head will be twisted around and awful things can happen to you. And there's a whole line of these supernatural sites that go all the way to Lake Sammamish. And what do they signify? That's the Seattle Fault. That's an earthquake fault. We've just discovered, oh, my God, if it happens, you know, we're going to be out of luck. Well, the Indians knew about that, and they had these signs that don't camp here. Warning, this is a dangerous area. Um, there's that. The fact that um, they knew about that, you know, Mount Rainier was an active volcano. They had a sense of the land. We're only beginning to appreciate that. We've nearly wiped out the salmon. The salmon population of, of the Pacific Northwest, before the Americans came, was about 10 million salmon, an annual return. The interesting thing was the native technology was so advanced, they could have fished every salmon out of the stream. They would build fence weirs across the rivers to prevent the salmon from going upstream. But they would only put their screens in certain times to make sure the people upstream had fish. And then they would calibrate the distances between the stakes in the screens to allow fish of a certain size to pass through. This was not people just catching fish that showed up. They were managing the fishery. They had been doing this for centuries. So that by the time the Americans came in, it seemed like you know, some divine beneficence. But the people had managed that fishery. And in less than 100 years, it was gone. So we begin to realize, oh my God, you know, we need to listen. And so we have people like um, Frank, what's his first name, the Puyallup man? Billy, yeah, yeah, who, you know, who they keep trying to talk to us and try to convince us that we need to do things in a different way. And we're at a point now where we're beginning to say, you know, this is kind of like a litany. They've been talking to us like this for years, from the very beginning. But it's only now that Americans are beginning to listen because we've been here long enough to have the experience of the land. And we're also getting over... It's like one of the things I like to say in the book was that it's taken 150 years for the Americans to understand that when Chief Seattle spoke, it was not all about them. <laughs> it was also <laughs> involved the native people, you know. So, but it's only now that we're beginning to understand as a society. And so I think, as I said, the greatest impediment to understanding Seattle has been the speech. I hope this biography will bring the complexity of the man, not just that, but the complexity of his times. Um, more into our ken so we have a, a better understanding of who he is. And really, uh, what, a, what a great man he was. Yeah. David, thank you so You're much. welcome. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. David Berge spoke with journalist and writer Knut Berger at Folio, the Seattle Athenaeum, on August 3rd. Tune in again soon.